0: Midi clinicians are menopause experts, offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.
1: Welcome everyone to a Baseball America podcast, along with Jim Callis. I'm John Manuel, coming to you from the Baseball America podcast nook. I want to remind everybody that the Baseball America iPad edition is available on your iPad Go to BaseballAmerica.com for details, or, of course, you can shop for it on the Apple iTunes Store and uh, you know the Baseball America podcast. This podcast, I believe, is going to be embedded in the next edition of the, uh, the iPad edition of Baseball America magazine. We do rem- want to remind you that the BA on the iPad app is a separate product from the Baseball America magazine, so if you subscribe to the magazine, that doesn't help you subscribe to the iPad product. Uh, if you have complaints about that, I've been told to tell you to go to Apple <laughs> and talk to them, but uh, we do encourage you to download the iPad app. It's already the most uh, downloaded iPad app in the Grind Media titles division uh, here at uh, Baseball America as a part of. Uh, so we're very excited about the success of the iPad app, and thanks everybody for the download. And uh, Jim, we hope this is a little extra content for people who download the iPad app and uh, pay for this issue, the this deadline uh, issue of Baseball America, the signing deadline issue. And in the past, we've built whole issues around the signing deadline in August. But this year, Jim, new CBA, new signing deadline, and basically 10% of the money spent on deadline day as was spent last year on deadline day. It's just a, a sea change, and it was really a dead deadline day up until the very last minute.
2: Yeah, it really was. And what's also nice is the deadline came at 5 p.m. Eastern instead of midnight, so we're not just sitting here waiting all day you know, trying to keep up with, you know, a trillion players signing. But I think you went back and looked, and we calculated last year, John, what was $132
1: million worth of deals on the final day of the draft. Just in bonuses, it's, $132 million, yeah. $139 million in change if you're counting, um, you know, major league contracts, which, of course, are prohibited now. For right, and
2: then you said you you did the math on the guys we came up with today, and there's probably some late-rounders who got $300,000 here, 100000 there but it was 13 million today. Yeah, it was a little uh,
1: north of 13 million, like 13.1, 13.2. And that was counting like Avery Romero's 700,000 earlier in the day helped push things over the 13 million mark.
2: Yeah, I mean it was it was def- definitely a different feel. And then but the funny thing was, you know, we came in today really no late round guys that were going to get a boatload of money. I don't I don't think the most we know about it that anybody's gotten after the 10th round is 426000 which the Blue Jays gave to Illinois high school pitcher Ryan Barucki a couple of days ago. There was a $400,000 deal by the Pirates today to Hayden Hurst in the 17th round, but there's no big deal there. So we came into the day tracking, mainly focusing on 17 players who were unsigned in the first 10 rounds. And Andrew Heaney, I'm sure we'll touch on him a little bit more in a minute, but after all the drama yesterday, oh, the Marlins walked away, we're not signing him. He's the first to go. He signs this morning. And then uh, Richie Schaefer of the Rays, which is really a deal that was done for a couple of days, waiting on a physical like these sometimes are. He was the second one announced. And then the other 15 guys, we really didn't know what was going to happen until the last 15 minutes before the deadline. And, and I think all the guys who signed, most of them signed in the last couple of minutes. And, and Kevin Gossman's details, number four overall pick, we, we waited a few minutes and then he tweeted he had signed. And I think it was about 4.20 before anybody knew what he had signed for, which was $4.32 million. Or i say 4.20, that's my central time. It was 5.20, 20 minutes after the Eastern deadline.
1: Right. Um, Jim, I'm not, uh, there are many places we could start. I think with the natural place to start in the first round. And with, with Gossman, you just mentioned him because I think it was pretty fascinating that even with these new rules, even with so many more players signed, that did not change the posturing that goes on. In the last week of the deadline, and I just thought that the Gossman case was a classic case of posturing, which, as opposed to Andrew Heaney uh, and Mark Appel, which were not classic cases of posturing, but Kevin Gossman was, where he had the report early in the week uh, in the New Orleans uh, Times-Picayune, what's left of it, saying that uh, you know Gossman was going back to LSU, and it seemed like posturing instantly, and then it really seemed like posturing. When Paul Mineri, the LSU coach, said, "Hey, wait a minute, guys, these reports are very premature." At that point, well, I guess was there ever a point where he really thought that he wasn't going to sign?
2: No, and, and, we, and we talked about this. Uh, and know, I've tweeted about it, and I've emailed people back, and and you know, this is just typical. You know, he had a little bit extra leverage because he's a college sophomore, so he doesn't risk, he doesn't lose as much leverage if he goes back for the next year. But I never thought he wasn't going to sign. And it's funny because you can predict these things. Pretty accurately. I I mean, I know I've joked with you that I could look like this great prognosticator by, you know, vaguely wording tweets and saying, oh, I expect Gossman to sign for about 4.3. And he did. You know, I mean, he was going to get probably a little bit more than slot because he had that sophomore eligibility. You know, the the pick value he had was 4.2 million. But I use this expression all the time. when We talk about guys at the top of the draft. When you go that high, you're almost a prisoner of your own talent where you're going to get offered. More money than you can realistically turn down. So it was just a case where you had the the Orioles in one corner trying to maybe hold him around four million, and the uh, you know Gossman in the other corner trying to raise the numbers as high as he could, and they kind of you know faced each other off, and at the end he got a little over four point two. But yeah, no, I mean getting back to your original question, I know you you, did, you felt the same way. I, I never thought he wasn't going to sign. That, that I, never made any sense to me.
1: I am somewhat surprised in retrospect that he got the third largest bonus. I mean, he was a fourth-player pick, but he got a larger bonus than Mike Zanino. I mean, I understand why that happened. Like you said, he had a little extra leverage. Zanino signed for below slot. I don't think it hurts the fact that Zanino not below slot, below recommendation. It doesn't hurt that Zanino's dad is a scout. That wasn't going to be a difficult negotiation there. Well, the other thing,
2: John, I was going to say, the real reason he got more wasn't even the sophomore eligibility. It's kind of like why Carlos Correa got, you know quote unquote only four point eight million right. picks. The teams and I think the agents too did such a good job at figuring out where guys were going to go. if Gossman didn't go four, he was gonna go five. And if he didn't go five, you know, I mean he was gonna go he was, gonna, he was probably gonna go six. He was going to next
1: Nino didn't go three, he could have fallen. We, was, he might have
2: gone eighth, he might have right. gone ninth, he right. might have gone tenth.
1: That's and it. so
2: the Mar and the other thing that that hurt him just a little bit in terms of what he finally got is when Appel didn't Mark Appel, who we'll obviously touch on in a second, didn't go number one like almost everybody expected, there was no time for anybody to react to that. Teams couldn't figure out exactly what Mark Capell wanted, but at the same time, I think the Mariners, when they were talking to Zanino's camp, said, Hey, Mark is available. We're really interested in Mark Capell. So all of a sudden Mark is a little bit of a hammer the Mariners can wield on Mike Zanino. Right. And you don't really have you know, if you're Mike Zanino's camp, you don't have a whole lot of time to figure out exactly how serious the Mariners are about Mark Appel,
1: and so you have to cut a quicker deal. So, you know, I mean, again,
2: well, I you not think the, right. that Mike DeNeal got four.
1: That's where I wanted to go. That's exactly where I wanted to go, was that the, it seemed like, and especially in the first ten picks, that, where well, the whole first round, where you could have fallen, where you could have wound up, really affected what t- players ended up getting, and that's kind of, that leads me to Andrew Heaney, because I wanted to save Appel for last, because Heaney sounds like this was the most contentious uh, negotiation, no matter – maybe it's the most contentious negotiation we know of, even though he did wind up signing. But, you know, the Marlins have a fairly decent recent track record of – how can I put this delicately? They bilked the taxpayers out of a lot of money in South Florida. Um, You know, Jeffrey Loria, David Samson, those guys are not to win friends and influence people. You know, they, they, they don't, they're not the most, uh, charming group of, uh, people in the industry. I, I, I guess that's a fair way to say it. I don't think they have tons of friends and allies throughout the industry, and they don't seem like they make a lot in the draft process either. They've kind of had this scorched earth policy in recent years, and they've lost some players on signability, uh, in recent drafts, including a third rounder last year and Connor Barron. They lost a fourth rounder for a different reason, for an injury with Tyler Palmer. But, uh, this year, it almost cost them a first-round pick and a third-round pick, and really, right at the deadline, they get Avery Romero, their third-rounder, and their first-rounder um, Andrew Heaney done. It sounds like that was that the most contentious negotiation you were aware of in this in this draft.
2: Yeah, I don't think there's any question. I mean, the, the Marlins have a reputation in some circles with the draft, um, and, and I don't. You know, it's funny. You know, Connor Barron last year was more that. They, I think if you didn't have the old rules where they made you wait to announce signings. And they could have paid him what they were willing to pay him in July rather than August, he might have signed. But they do have a reputation sub circles for kind of having a scorched earth negotiation policy. And then after you sign the player, bygones or bygones, but you know, there was no communication, you know, which is the Marlins right, but it is atypical. There was no communication between the team and the player before the draft. You know, Heaney's camp felt like if he didn't go ninth, the A's at eleven and White Sox at thirteen were definitely going to take him and give him full pick value. So that, you know, they, they were you know, they wanted to, they they had safe havens right behind the Marlins. And the Marlins, you know, played a very hard line, you know, low balled him, you know, two point eight million dollar pick value, really didn't offer him over two million until this week. And then in the, you know, we had this whole drama of the Marlins told him, you know, hey, we need three days to do a physical. The Marlins probably give you the most intensive physicals of any team. Ever since their first rounder a few years ago, Jeff Allison had all kinds of drug addiction problems. They do all kinds of blood work and everything. And they said, if we can't get him signed by Tuesday night, we can't sign him. And they said, hey, we're walking away. Uh, hey, John, are we having an Internet problem now? I don't believe so. Okay, sorry. We'll have to edit that part out. I had a message on my computer.
1: but well, I, I saw a message as well, but I think we're okay.
2: Okay, well, we'll talk around it or edit that out. But anyway, so they told him Tuesday, if we don't sign you by Tuesday, we're walking away. You know, Wednesday said we're done, sorry. Thursday they confirmed that to their local media as well. You know, we're not signing him, and then he he signs this morning for 2.6, which is 25,000 less than he would have gotten had the A's paid him full value at 11. So it's not a bad deal for Andrew Heaney at all. But it seems to me, just as an outsider, that you didn't have to leave such a negative taste. In, in the Heaney camp's mouth about this whole thing, you, you could have signed him probably for the same number without all, with all the acrimony. Um, you know, and they jumped through a lot of hoops. They finally got Avery Romero done right before the deadline for $700,000. And one of the things, I mean, not that this guy was an elite pick, but they had their 19th rounder, Cody Gunner, was willing to sign for $200,000. Um, but the Marlins insisted they weren't going to pay a penny of draft tax. So I told him, if we get Heaney done at a discount, we'll give you 200 dollars they didn't give him 200 because Romero cost a little more than they hoped, and they wind out, wound up offering Gunter 174, 400, which was right up to the threshold of paying zero tax. And the, that kid was so ticked off, he didn't take it. And that would have been a nice get, you know, to get a guy like that for 200,000, a real projectable physical high school kid in the 19th round. So they kind of kind of messed that one up. And. And we'll see what happens, but my guess is Cody Gunner is not exactly jumping at the opportunity to sign a consent to redraft form for the Marlins in three years.
1: <laughs> exactly. That's a great point. And then I think, lastly, before we try to look a little big picture, we got to talk about Mark Appel. Uh, Mark Appel was not number one on our draft board coming in, but we did think he was going to go number one in the draft. We thought he was going to be the first pick for the Astros. Uh, as you said earlier in the podcast, he wound up going eighth, and there was really no when he didn't go first when when the uh you know when the Astros did not uh draft Mark Appel and decided instead to go with Carlos Correa and cut deals which were, I think was very smart I, I love the the way the Astros did the draft we'll talk about that more later uh but Marcapelle winds up uh, winds up going eighth to the Pittsburgh Pirates and he winds up not signing uh winds up going back to Stanford as a senior and Jimmy turned down 3.8 million dollars uh that's not going to sit well with a lot of people. It's uh, probably not going to sit well with a lot of people in the industry. Um, so, the, the net result of this is Mark Appel, very little upside in my mind. It's very hard to go better than eight. <laughs> He's only got seven spots to go. And, and less
2: leverage next year, too, as a senior. Correct. I mean, because in my attitude is if somebody picks him next year, and on that team, my attitude, John, would be. You know, if you want to, I mean, not that everybody's going to be scorched earth negotiating negotiations, but even if he comes out and has the same year, the team's going to say to to, to Scott Boris and the player, "Are you really going to go through the draft again and re-enter it next year at age 23?" So, I mean, he's not going to have the same leverage even if he goes higher.
1: Yeah, I I, I don't, I don't disagree with any in any way. I mean, like uh, James Ramsey was a senior who went in the first round, who got close to pick value, did he not?
2: He did. He got $1.6 million, which was only slightly under. And you know, again, talking about what we did with Zanino and Gosman, that's because there were a number of teams picking right behind the Cardinals who told James Ramsey, don't cut a deal. Don't give in and cut a big deal at a deep discount because we'll pay you right behind the Cardinals.
1: Right. So so that helps Ramsey. But I mean, even still, he had, a, he had as good a year, really, as anyone in college baseball. He had other teams behind him, but he still got $1.6. I, I'm saying that. I, I could see where Appel could do a little better than that, but it's highly unlikely he's going to get more than $3.8 million next year. doesn't mean he can't, but it's unlikely because he'll be a senior, like you said. Teams will have a pretty big hammer. Meanwhile, uh, he's going back to college. You know, it is Stanford. It's a Stanford degree. That's worth something. This is, you know, if, if I could pick any school in the country to go to, I'd go to Stanford. Um, I say that as a – Come
2: on, John. You'd go to
1: Duke. You know you would. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Uh, if I could pick any school, that's where I'd go. So that Stanford degree has some, some, some oomph to it. And yet, uh, it feels like the pirates. Yes, they don't sign their first round pick, but they add $4 million, basically roughly uh, a little less than 4 million to next year's draft pool. So they'll have a, even though they probably won't pick in the first 10 picks because they're having a good big league season this year. Uh, they're going to have a pick in the first 10 to make up for a Pell. um, they don't really seem like big losers in this. They went for it. It didn't work out, but it doesn't feel like the Pirates screwed this up. It seems like the big loser in this, I, I, I hate to go winner and loser, but it's hard to see the upside for Mark Appel. And I think that this Scott Boris Corporation, which was advising Mark Appel in this process, uh, did not figure out a loophole in this system. So I've got to think that Bud Selig is feeling pretty good about the way this worked out. Doesn't he?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't think Bud Steele is necessarily happy that Mark Capel didn't sign or didn't rake, rake in a huge payday, but I think he's probably happy that the draft spending was down this year. Although I will say, and we haven't calculated the final numbers, we don't have all the numbers for the late rounds, draft spending would have been down significantly anyway because you weren't going to have the top seven picks in the draft get a combined $45 million like they did last year. Correct. But I, I, I think your analysis is spot on. I look at this from the Pirates' perspective. You're picking eight. Mark Appel is clearly the best player on your board. There was a clear top eight in this draft. It's a gamble worth taking. And when he doesn't sign, they get the number nine pick, which is going to be a, a pick value of 2800000 get million. They'll get that pick. They'll get two, an extra $2.8 million in the next year's draft pool. That's a win. I mean, not a win, but it's like you, you can make it back. You know, it they, they softens can recover the, from the that.
1: blow. It softens the blow of not getting a pell, especially considering the last two years you got Cole and Tyone in the draft. I'm not saying you didn't want to make it Cole Tyone Appel, but it softens the blow. I'm with you.
2: Yeah, you know, and the thing is, it was worth the gamble because you shouldn't right. have had a chance to pick him at eight. It's worth taking that gamble because you can recover, you get the comparable pick next year, which is protected for an extra year under the new rules. If they don't sign that guy to get the tenth pick in two thousand fourteen. You know, it gives him more spending power you- next year. They redistributed a little bit of the money you know they they signed Max Moore off, a high school shortstop from Florida in the 16th round for 300,000, they got a high school pitcher from Florida in the 17th round for 400,000. You know, they 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 spent some of the money they had kind of saved and earmarked for a it didn't go to waste. And really their approach was, and I think this was the common sense approach for the Pirates, we'll pay him as much as we can without giving up a first round pick next year. They offered him 3.8. Now, and the thing is, you know, whether you know, let's say Mark Capell had gone number one. And we'll pick a number, who knows what he would have gotten from the Astros had he gone number one, had that worked out. But let's say it's it's six million dollars. So even if you say it was four point eight million like Correa got, and I think it would have been more, they could not have paid him four point eight million without giving up two first round picks. There's right. no way they could have made that money up. And as good as Mark Capel is, the, giving up extra picks for him was not worth it when you could reclaim the pick next year. And I agree, I mean, Scott Boris's guys have a habit of landing on their feet and coming you know, coming out smelling like roses. And I would never bet the under. I say this all the time. I would never bet the under on a Scott Boris player. Um and you know, right now I'm with you, I would think that Mark Capel has less leverage. He probably is gonna have a hard time making more than three point eight next next year, three point eight million. There's no way I would bet against him. Um but it's gonna be difficult. He's gonna have less leverage. The teams are gonna know he doesn't want to have to go back in the draft again. If he has a down tick at all, that hurts him. One thing we should probably note here. I've seen some some misperceptions about this uh, just with people asking me and talking about the draft. Next year's draft is not better than this year's draft. I think Uh, it's slightly uh, worse. It's certainly no better. This was a mediocre draft. Next year's draft, I don't think the high school class is quite as strong. I don't see – I mean, I guess Appel is now part of the pitching class. I don't see the Appel, Gossman, Zimmer triumvirate at the top of the draft, and I don't think the college hitters are are very exceptional. I mean, there seems like a big drop-off after Colin Moran and Chris Bryant – so,
1: yeah, uh, good year.
2: yeah, I mean, so it's like, it's not like he's going into a great draft class. So he, I mean, he could go, I mean, I actually will say this, John, I actually think he will go higher next year's draft because at one, I mean, right now, I mean, he'd be my most talented guy in the draft for next year. If I was doing a draft board today, two, he's going to have less leverage. so That's going to make him more attractive to people too. So he probably does go higher than eight. I don't know if he'll ever, if, if 6 million, you keep hearing the $6 million number I don't know where it came from, but that's what he was shooting for with the Astros, which the Astros and Scott Boris both denied that any money was specifically discussed. But if six million is his magic number, I don't know if he's getting back to six next year. I don't see how that can happen.
1: I agree. I don't see I don't see how he's getting there. I don't I just don't see that happening. And uh even if he goes higher, which I agree with you. I mean you think about next year's college draft class. I mean, Carson Whitson finished the year out of the rotation and not in like the top three or four bullpen guys for Florida. So where's Carson Whitson? I mean, you look at USA college national team, uh, Jonathan Crawford, Ryan Stanek. I'd say Ryan Stanick for me right now is the top college pitcher. I like Ryan Stanek. I don't know if you saw him in Omaha. I saw him good in Omaha, the college national uh, – uh, Nathan and Connor saw him here good for the college national team. Um, but Ryan Stanick, I know he's was the 99th overall pick a couple of years ago at high school – there's some people who don't like his arm action. I, I like Ryan Stanick. He's kind of comparable to Kevin Gossman for me. Uh, maybe there'll be someone else who emerges as a Zimmer. Maybe you hope that Whitson comes back, uh, bounces back. Uh, like you said, there's Moran, there's Bryant. I think, Jim, really any way you stack it up, at this point, obviously a lot could happen between now and next June, but the 2013 draft class, I think it's good that you made that point. I don't think there's any way you can say that next year's draft class appears to be stronger or deeper than this year's draft class. It doesn't mean it can't be, or it couldn't develop into that, but right now the signs are just not there Uh, in the industry. Right now we're kind of in a trough of uh, draft talent. So um, it doesn't look like a strong year next year. Jim, while we're talking about Mark Capel, I do think it's interesting with the Pirates to touch on a couple other guys. Apparently they didn't really make a great big run at their 14th rounder, Walker Beeler. And they also didn't sign their fourth rounder, Brandon Thomas, which sounds like it was just a kind of a messed up situation in a lot of ways.
2: Yeah, I, I really don't know what happened with Brandon Thomas. That's right. probably the, the one guy in the first 10 rounds that I feel like I know the least about. I'm not sure what happened there. I don't know what he was asking for. I don't know if he figured they weren't going to sign a Pell and they'd have more money. The, the, that story has yet to be told. And you know, Bueller, they
1: were made, by the way, t- attempts were made to reach the Thomas uh, family, and uh, still haven't heard back from them yet to get their side of. Of the story,
2: you know, and with Walker Bueller, he was a guy we had ranked as a sandwich round talent. We thought he'd be an obvious guy if they didn't sign Mark Appel. They could give they they'd roughly saved about seven hundred thousand dollars to try to add to Appel's coffers um, with their various other signings in the first ten rounds. And I just think you know, I'd heard Bueller's asking price before the draft was reportedly seven figures. He's a Vanderbilt commit. Vanderbilt does a good job of staying on top of their guys and working them and re-recruiting them all summer. And I think what happened there was there was a some a quick check in at one point, and I just don't feel like the the pirates felt like yeah I think Bueller's number was higher than the pirates wanted to pay him. They had some interest if the number was lower than seven figures it wasn't. So they gave three hundred thousand to their sixteenth rounder, they gave four hundred thousand to their seventeenth rounder, they gave a one hundred twenty five today to their eighteenth rounder. Um, you know they they spent the money in other areas. I I kind of like I mean he doesn't make the draft all by himself. They didn't sign one Stanford guy Mark Appel. And I know Tyler Gaffney's not, you know, the equivalent of Mark He He's a guy who played football at Stanford. He kind of intrigues me. And they got him in the 24th round for a below six-figure bonus. Uh, I thought that was interesting. They have other players in this draft who are good. You know, was Mark Capel the, 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 the big part of their draft? Yes, he obviously was as a number eight pick. They still got Barrett Barnes in the sandwich round. They still got Wyatt Matheson in the second round. They still got John Sanfort in the third round. They got some good players in this draft. They spent some money late. So it's not by not signing Mark Capel, it's not like it just totally devastated their whole draft either. I mean he was a key part of it and he would have made this a very good draft, but they, they, they didn't come away with nothing.
1: Yeah, see I disagree. I I think he was the linchpin of their draft. I thought Brandon Thomas uh is very comparable to Bear Barnes. you know, you and I don't necessarily agree a lot on Barrett Barnes. I I don't I don't I'm not as high on Barrett Barnes. As you are, I mean, Wyatt Matheson, you know, he hasn't really done a lot of catching. I'm not saying that precludes him from being a catcher. I thought Jan, John Sanford, we were a little low on him. I thought that he was a little bit of a reach in the third round. Adrian Sampson, we'll see. Uh, I don't see a whole lot to, to hang your hat on with this draft. I did write up Max Moroff. I'm not sure why he's not in our database, but uh, Hayden Hurst, uh, who they spent a lot of money on in the 14th round, had Tommy John surgery at age 14. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not on it. I'm not on that draft. I'm not saying it's a terrible draft. But uh, I thought that Mark Appel was the linchpin of their draft class. And, well, know, I agree we'll with you on that, John.
2: I agree he was the linchpin. I just was saying, like, to me, if the Nationals hadn't signed Lucas Giolito, who they gave, you know, almost $3 million and they had a four, you know, little, a budget a little over $4 million, the Nationals draft would have been really hurting. At least, you know, the, the Pirates had an extra pick. You know they they have some guys they can at least dream on a little bit here.
1: I see what you're saying. Uh, speaking of Giolito, excellent transition. We've been we've been segue central today in this uh, disjointed podcast, but uh, Lucas Giolito gets done, and Jim, it's 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 a uncanny streak with the Nationals, uh, Steven Strasberg and Bryce Harper back to back years in the '09 and '10 drafts. Now I know we had a number one on our board. I love Anthony Rendon. Uh, he was number one on our board last year, but, I mean, it's, it's hard to say that he was the best player in last year's draft at this point. Considering sure. his play, he has four bats. Um But Lucas Giolito, another injury risk, uh, a little bit more of one, I would say, that, than Rendon, because Rendon's injuries, while he's had another one, all his injuries in college were thought to be ones that he would be able to overcome. But Giolito with an elbow injury, hasn't thrown. I just was, uh, you know, it sounds like he, he they even backed him off a little bit in recent weeks. Uh, when it appeared that likely that he was going to sign with his throwing programs. I, I still think he has not been off a mound, and yet $2.9 million. It's very possible the Nationals got the number one talent in this draft because I think if the, see if the if the whole spring had played out, and Giolito had been healthy, in this draft class, he had a real shot to be the number one overall pick. Don't you think?
2: I agree, and it's like you know, I think the Nationals have been very shrewd and very fortunate. If you were picking two years to have the number one overall pick, yeah. to have it in back-to-back years where you get Strasburg, who's the best pitching prospect in the history of the draft, and you come back the next year and you got Bryce Harper, and I'm just doing this to antagonize you, John, the best <laughs> power-hitting prospect in the history of the draft, that's two great guys to get there back-to-back. Then I agree with you on Rendon. You know, they got him at six because of a little bit of the injury question last year, and he's been hurt this year. But theoretically, Rendon... Some teams considered him the best player in last year's draft. And then this year before Lucas Giolito got hurt, he was considered the best player in this year's draft by some clubs. That's an unbelievable run. And I think for a team that looks like they're going to make the playoffs, this was a great gamble to take at 16. It's similar to the Appel gamble yep. in that if it pays off, you got a guy who's a lot better. He, His ceiling is so much better than where you picked him. It's worth taking the gamble, even in Giolito's case, or, you know, maybe he needs Tommy John down the road. You know, that's not as scary as a shoulder injury or something. I mean, here's a guy who was throwing 99 miles an hour, nasty breaking ball, could have been the first high school right to ever go number one in the draft. And, you know, the Nationals are winning now. You don't need Lucas Giolito to contribute, you know, get to the big leagues in a year or so. You can nurse him back to health. And if they do that, that $2.925 million bonus is going to look like a bargain. I thought it was a great pick.
1: Great pick and pretty uh, I think pretty vital. They signed him, and they don't even pay any tax, correct? I mean, they're over by one hundred twelve thousand dollars, but that's not. I guess yeah, there is they, some well, they'll
2: tax they'll, there. they'll they'll pay about eighty thousand dollars in tax. I'm sorry, yeah. didn't didn't come close to losing a pick. You know, and the thing was, you know, they didn't have as much wiggle room as other teams because their whole bonus pool was only four point four million dollars. Right. So you know, their their tax they could go up to two hundred twenty thousand over that, and they kind of split the difference. It looks to me like they split the difference with Giolito. Here's where we pay no tax. Here's where we pay max tax, and they pretty much cut it down the middle. Um, but, yeah, it, I mean, it, that's a tremendous get at 16, and, you know, to pay they, okay, they have to pay, you know, $80,000 or whatever in tax. You know, I'll, I'll go ahead and do that. You know, but roughly, I mean, when you add the tax, he's going to cost them about $3 million.
1: They so only drafted uh, nine – they drafted and signed 10 players who were in our – the BA 500. They drafted 13. They signed 10. So this is not – a team like you said when you when we glance at it, it's not a team that we think look at and think this is a really deep draft, <laughs> you know. Um, well, yeah, not,
2: not only that, John, not just the BA five hundred. When you take out Giolito, we they had one other guy in our top hundred players,
1: right, Tony Renda, Renda,
2: and one other guy after that in our top two hundred players. So they had thirteen guys, and they were almost all outside of our top two hundred prospects. Uh, and and I like Tony Renda. But I mean, Tony Renda is a tiny second baseman. He's not like a, a guy who's dripping with tools. He's more of a gritty player who can really hit. And, and Brett Mooneyham, the other guy who was in the top 200, I mean, he can show you first-round stuff. It also might be going to the backstop. It's not like he has a great track record of success. So even the other guys they got in the top 200 are not slam dunk, can't miss types. I mean, there's you know, I mean, this draft, this draft is going to hinge on Lucas Giolito.
1: Are you saying that my personal cheeseball Brandon Miller is not going to carry this draft? He already has two home runs as a pro.
2: Well, I like him. I like. I know you <laughs> love your Brandon Miller, but I'm just saying, even your top 200 guys. I mean, you know, I think we we call. I mean, we described Brett Mooneyham. I think it was when Connor Glassy wrote him up. Uh, Shotgun what command. It? Shotgun command that can you know get you fired. And, and Tony Renda is listed at five foot eight and 173 pounds. So, and I like Tony Renda. I mean, Tony Renda can really hit and he can really play. But I'm just saying, even their other two top 200 guys. We're not your typical, you know, guy. I'm completely with you.
1: With you. I'm completely yeah. with you. It's a really – it's a. It's, they put all their chips on Lucas Giolito and the gamble worked. And the, I, I think, you know, to me it just reflects the fact that you've got a, a former scouting director and Mike Rizzo who's at the top of that organization. You have a guy in Roy Clark, the assistant general manager. You have a lot of – that's a scouting-oriented front office in Washington. And those guys – are not out there to draft complimentary players. They're looking. If, if you don't have a six or a seven on the checklist, they're not going to pay you big time money. I mean, they you know, they drafted some other complimentary guys, but that's a that's a star system organization, and they give big money to guys who have sixes and sevens on the tools checklist on a scouting report. It's a, it's a consistent approach. That's what Mike Rizzo did in Arizona. It's, in a lot of ways, that's what Roy Clark did in Atlanta. And that's what those guys are doing with Chris Klein, their scouting director now in Washington. I think it's a, it's a, it's an approach. And I think it's a good approach. I, uh, I think you can find big league. That's what your pro scouting staff is for, in my mind, is to find complimentary guys in pro ball. In the amateur draft, that's where you find stars because you find them at an affordable price. In the draft, so I, I like Washington's approach, and I, I, I commend them on that approach. Uh, Jim, let's talk about the the, the the big picture here. Like you said, with this draft class, even under the old CBA, this draft class was going to get less money than last year's draft. But first draft under the new CBA, some some pluses and minuses. I'd say that one plus was, like we said at the start, <laughs> 10% of the money spent on this year's deadline that was spent last year. You don't have this flood. And this year, Jim, it really seemed like it was the teams that wanted to release terms of how they signed players, as opposed to the past, where getting terms and getting play- the announcements that players even had signed was pulling teeth.
2: Yeah, because the teams were signing guys for below pick value. I, when you look at this draft, I see – I mean, we've discussed this on and off the air. I, I'm a free market guy. If I was a commissioner of baseball, bizarre baseball – I would let the small revenue teams spend whatever they wanted on the draft because I think it's the biggest bargain in player development. But I see that there were some things about this draft that aren't great. You know, the, 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 thing that, the biggest thing that was screwed up with this year's draft was the 7th or 10th round being like all, you know, a senior center. We're drafting guys, college seniors, sign them for $5,000. I refer to it in the columns the bastardization around 7th through ten. That, that was goofy. I could do without that. That's not how the draft's supposed to work, and it was goofy. I think there were a lot of positives. In that the pick values were much more representative of market value in a lot of cases than the old than the old slotting system where where the slots weren't anywhere close to what the market value was on guys. you had guys sign quicker, which made everybody happy. you had m l b basically letting the rules police the teams and not trying to pressure the teams to not sign guys for big money and to keep it quiet. You let guys – when guys signed, you found out about it. They started playing instead of guys getting big money and having to wait two months before the deal became official. I think that was positive. I do think, you know, I mean, negotiations, you know, they're not always going to go smoothly on both sides. I don't think from the player, advisor, or agent, whatever you want to call them, side – they loved the. A lot of teams put a lot of guys on the spot before the draft. Hey, John, we're calling you. We're here in the third round. Our pick's worth this. We're only going to pay 450 You got five minutes to tell me if you're going to take it or we're moving on. Right. I know a lot of guys didn't enjoy that. I talked to scouts who didn't enjoy calling players, asking, especially in the, those rounds seven through ten, hey, will you sign for $10,000? Guy tells him yes team says, well, we're going to go in a different direction, don't call guys back. I heard from a number of scouts, he said I hated that. I was calling players, they told me they'd sign, and then we didn't even call the guy back. So that part of it wasn't great, but in terms of getting players signed, the process was, for the most part, smoother, and I think the biggest fear initially, John, when, when we first heard these rule changes before, we, we saw exactly what they were and thought them through, was, oh, it's going to be impossible to sign high school players. High school players are going to college. And then, after we ta- start talking to teams in January, a lot of teams were telling us you know what, I still think guys who want to sign are going to sign even if the number's a little bit lower. And I just did a column in our last issue that showed the percentages were almost the exact same as last year when teams could have spend whatever they want and give Josh Bell $5 million and Austin Hedges $3 million if they wanted. Same percentage of, of top 100 rated high school prospects signed this year as did last year. Same percentage of guys we had ranked 101 to 200 on our top 500 list signed this year as last year. They just went higher in the draft. You had you had what I thought was a nice side effect, John, and I know this has been a long answer and I'll stop in a minute. It's okay. What, what a nice side effect was for the most part, the best players, at least the best players who were gonna sign went at the top of the draft. You didn't have guys you didn't have Josh Bell who should have been a mid first round pick going with pick sixty one because everybody thought he was unsignable. You had for the most part the very best players all went in the top fifty or sixty picks because you need to take the higher you took a guy, it was easier to pay him. So I think the draft in terms of sending, of distributing the talent more fairly, I think it did that. I think the lesser teams got a got a more bigger chance at, or a bigger share of the better players, and the best players for the most part went at the top of the draft and they still signed. So we did not see, as some initially feared, you know, when we first heard the announcement in November, you did not see any great change in elite players going to college. It, it's about the same.
1: I, I'm 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 with you on your on your analysis. I do. I'm completely with you. I, I really wish that the draft just happened with no rules <laughs> as far as, you you know, you clubs, we're we're the commissioner's office. We're not going to tell you how to spend your money. There's no, I mean, that would be the better system. I mean, I, I still think that some teams would get taken advantage of by advisors and some wouldn't. But I think the fewer rules, the better. Some clubs would spend a lot of money. Some clubs would not. And that would affect you know that, that that would be seen in the big leagues. Uh, you know, you, if you if you developed and drafted and developed well, you would win more in the major leagues. If you didn't, you would have to make up for it in other ways in the major leagues. I, I'm I'm more for fewer rules in the draft. That said, that's that's not realistic. That's not going to happen. I don't think that genie right. Yeah, you know, you know, this genie's not getting put back in the bottle. What do you think of this tweak, Jim? Do you think that the draft would work better if, uh, if this current draft? Uh, would work it, well, well to uh, first a question, then I'll give you my little modest proposal. I, I feel like the biggest detriment, the biggest thing that this system does is it takes that hammer away from star players. Star players cannot get treated really too well. I think it actually worked pretty well for a draft class like this one that was fairly flat. There was that top eight that was defined, after that, there was a pretty decent disparity of opinion on other players in the first round and with a flat but somewhat deep talent pool, some players got paid better than they might have been paid if there were no rules, for example. You had to get pay you had to pay the ninth pick two point eight million dollars, or that was or close to it, two point six as it turned out. But in the past years if teams really felt there was a chasm between pick eight and nine, pick nine might have just gotten less than that. Two million dollars, two and a half million dollars. Two and a quarter. Uh, does that does that make sense? I feel like this draft yeah, I know class what you're actually worked well
2: with this system because it, it was it flat. And it gave teams at the very top flexibility because the top picks valued at 7.2, and there wasn't a 7.2 million guy in this draft. Right. It, the thing I'll be curious is what happens the next time we get one of these great draft classes. I'm right. looking at last year's draft class. And I'm, I'm putting. Uh, well, we'll just let's look at the top eight, seven or eight picks. Just say what happens if a if a Bryce Harper comes along again. Well, well let's just let's just look at last year. Garrett Cole was the number one pick. He signed for an eight million dollar bonus. Well, you know this year the Astros had seven point two million for that number one pick. But, you know I don't know if he would have gotten eight, but they could have paid him handsomely. He would have gotten close to that. Number two pick, Danny and He got a big league deal that was worth you know net present value of seven point seven million dollars. His pick value would have been six point two. They could have met in the middle. He would have been paid. Trevor Bauer actually signed for less. His major league contract, the present value in terms of what was guaranteed, he'll probably make more now because he got to the big league so quickly, but in terms of what was guaranteed, was less than what the pick value was this year. She so priced right. on him. But the tricky part gets in okay, last year the number four pick Dylan Bundy had a major league deal worth $6.25 million, your present value of 5.6. Well, that picks four point two. He's a high school player. Okay, you know maybe, but Bubba Starling, he's not getting seven and a half million. Anthony Rendon, he's not getting a a, a contract with a net value of six point six million dollars.
1: Do you think Anthony Rendon
2: would have th- gone back to
1: college as a senior?
2: No, I just I'd be curious just to see how it would have played out. You know, Archie Bradley couldn't have gotten five million at pick seven. I mean, I guess he could have. You know, teams would have had to shift a ton of money around. So that's the one thing. Well, I think I, I think I was just following up on you said, John. This was a perfect draft for breaking in a new system because right. you didn't have guys who were going to push the envelope all over the top of the first round. I just I'd be curious to see if you had a draft like last year where you had seven guys who were legitimate number one caliber type of players. Could you pay them all? Would they all
1: sign? And uh, I really do wonder with players that are that who who are that talented, like Dylan Bundy. Where we had our recent midseason top 50, and had him number one, and you had Dylan Bundy, where scouts were telling you last year, and scouts were telling us this might be the best first—I mean, the best high school pitcher I've ever seen. Um, you really almost have to wonder uh, would teams give up future picks to get a Dylan Bundy? Whereas right now, teams are probably going to tell next year's guys, or two or three years from now, hey, the precedent's been set—we're not giving up a first-round pick to give you special money,
2: right? And I don't know if anybody will give up a first-round pick because the tricky thing is if you're picking high, let's say you had to do that at, at four to get Dylan Bundy, if you're picking those picks aren't protected, and if you're picking, like, even with the Pirates this year, and I know they're playing well, but they were playing well last year, and then they collapsed right. down the stretch right. and wound up with the number pick in the draft. If the Pirates had, say, given up a first-round pick or, let's say, two first-round picks to sign Mark Capel somehow, it's possible those could both be top-ten picks. And unlike free agent compensation picks, of which there will be a lot fewer going forward, that rule is going to change this offseason. Yep. If you go over budget, your pick's not protected. Theoretically, the team that has the number one pick in the draft, if they spent too much the year before, they could lose that number one overall pick. And just think so about, about if it,
1: if it this system more, more in place in 2009. Basically, at that time, the Nationals could have said, okay, we're going to give up the 2010 pick. Uh, we're going to go ahead and give up a shot at Tyone or Machado, because that 2010 class doesn't look great. We're going to go ahead and pay all this money to Strasbourg and give up our 2010 pick. Oh, snap. Bryce Harper decided to, end, to enter the draft a year early, really two years early, and you don't get a shot at Bryce Harper. Yeah, I mean, and the
2: thing is, too, nobody's going to want to give up
1: that pick, like you said. And
2: I think if I'm the team, either, I mean, I know, so let's say I'm there in 2009, and, and I'm, I'm in exactly in that mindset. And I'm looking at you know Steven Strasburg, you know, possibly the best prospect in the history of the draft. The thing is though, and I know I overuse this phrase "prisoner of their own talent." if I'm negotiating with Steven Strasburg and he has to go through the draft and I pick him one one, he's not going to get any a better deal the next year. I could give him you know seven point two million of his pick value. I'm going to have a huge budget pick at one one right. so I could probably give him an extra five or six hundred thousand dollars on top of that. You know, without giving up a draft pick, so there I'm at 7.8 million, and I can maybe shift a little bit of money around. But even if I don't let's say I offer Steven Strasburg 7.5 million dollars, what's his alternative? Is he going to go back into the draft the next year and get offered 7.5 million again? So we take him I, back I, here at San Diego State, Jim. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying. So I mean, I think I, mm-hmm. I, I just think with the team. Well, what's great about these rules from the team standpoint is, and it's what the I mean. They didn't get a pell, so they didn't get him. But I can, you know, in the past, if I didn't want to pay a player X amount, I'm saying I don't want to do that. I I can tell you, all oh, right, John, I can't pay your guy that, and you can say, Jim, you could pay him whatever you want. Exactly. Now I can show you on a piece of paper or at BaseballAmerica.com with the the handy uh, draft calculator that Tim Collins and Brent Lewis helped design. I can say we can only pay your guy with a Pell. I, the, the numbers changed because they it but it's like three point, you know, three million eight hundred and two thousand and four hundred sixty-two dollars, whatever it is. I cannot pay you more than that without losing a draft pick, and it's it's now it very much is I can't do this because nobody wants to give up that pick. I'll be curious, John. I I cannot envision a scenario where a team would give up a pick unless you had a Strasbourg fall like down into the twenties. Right. But I don't. think Strasbourg's ever going to fall into the twenties because I think the teams at the top of the draft are going to say, you know what, even if he doesn't like our number, it's not That's high right. enough. We still can pay more than anybody else, so we're going to take him. I I just I wonder. I don't. I won't say it'll never happen. But I just cannot imagine a scenario where a team is going to give up a draft pick unless they somehow screw up their math and do it that way by some kind of miscalculation where they thought they were signing the guy below slot and he falls through at the last second and they're left holding the bag. I just don't think a team is going to willfully give up a draft pick anytime soon.
1: I agree. I'm, I'm with you. My only tweak I guess I would suggest, Jim, is do you think that it would make the first 10 rounds go in order better in terms of talent if you had that $100,000 bonus, but then you, after the 10th round, so if a team paid a guy like, uh, say they paid like, uh, Hayden Hurst, what do you get, 427
2: I think, well, Hurst got 400 even.
1: 400 even. So only 300000 of that counted against their cap. What if you went after the first 10 rounds, that, that hard limit, maybe there was a hard limit of $200,000, period. But it was a hard limit, and if you went over your cap, it counted over your cap, period. It, was, uh, it counted, uh, well, maybe, uh, I don't know how you would enforce, but a, a hard cap of $200,000, and you raise the money in the first 10 rounds a little bit. Would that make the first 10 rounds really go in order of talent? No, uh, cause I think what be would have Flexible and maybe would only take a couple of college seniors or cheap signs in rounds 8 or 9 or 10 instead of, Four through ten like the uh, like the Blue Jays did? Because it really doesn't – I don't know how you force that. It feels like that's what MLB is trying to force. I don't know how you could really legislate that. How would you tweak – what do you think of my tweak? I think you raise. I think the cap after the tenth round needs to be a hard cap, myself, if so you are going to have that, that number. Instead of what tweaks w- would you do within this framework going forward? Well,
2: I don't think, ML, I, don't think ML, I think MLB only cares about saving money. So I don't think they care that round 7 through 10 were all these seniors. And I think even if you raised caps after the 10th round, you'd still have teams taking a bunch of cheap guys round 6 through 10 if they're going to overpay guys in the early rounds. I was thinking about this. I think the only way you would have round 6 through 10 play out more according to talent would be – and this would be very convoluted. I don't even know if I can explain this concisely – if you took your draft pool and you and you, you just factored it for the first five rounds and your draft pool was based on your first five rounds, and then after round five, you had 150 would be the max for each player, and anything over that counted against the cap. If you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So then if, if you, if you tightened it up and you made it only the first five rounds were subject to the bonus pool, then teams really couldn't do... I mean, you could take some college seniors in rounds four and five, but you wouldn't be doing a lot of that. Um, so you could do that. But like I said, I don't even think MLB really cares. I think MLB just wanted costs down. And I don't think that MLB at the end of the day cares. If part of that, one of the side effects is round seven through ten become kind of a joke in a lot of cases. Or a joke's on so be it. But, I know what you're you know, saying. If it's just like we're throwing away, we're signing a guy for 5000 because we want, we value his money more than the player's talent, MLB's like, so be it. You know, the teams may not like it. Um, but I don't think MLB even really cares what the what the scouting directors want. As long as they're saving money and the owners are happy, I don't think we'll see that change. So you, that would be one way to do it. I, li-
1: I like that proposal. I like that proposal. If we're I gonna have this framework, I like that proposal. So,
2: but it, but all in all, I mean, I didn't like the goofiness where you you, you know you, you you took guys who really had no business being in those rounds just because you wanted to save money, but. You know, I think overall, for the most part, in, in most cases, not every case, there were some contentious negotiations, there were deals that didn't get done. A lot of deals a lot of good deals got done quickly and a lot of things moved smoothly and it was a lot less artificial process than we had in the past where teams could spend whatever they wanted, but you had to jump through a million hoops to do it.
1: We'll wrap up, Jim, with two podcast questions from two of our longtime listeners and frequent question askers, uh, JP Japers and uh Angela Cades. Japers was first. Strictly a monetary issue that caught appell to, caused Appell to sign or something else as well. Sounds like it was strictly monetary, right, Jim?
2: Yeah, I don't think – again, we'll, we, we may find out more about this. Although, again, with the NCAA rules, I don't know if the Appell side is going to want a lot of details coming out about exactly what ha- happened in negotiations. Right now, we don't know a lot. We only know Pittsburgh offered the max they could offer without a first-round pick. I mean, to Pittsburgh, that's a business decision. I've heard from all kinds of fans today, oh, you know, Boris is going to send Appel to Japan, or they're going to go to court, they're going to do this or that. I don't see a loophole. I don't think there's something Scott's pulling out of his sleeve to suddenly make Mark Appel $6 million. And I don't think the 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 the, the, the Boris camp, or the Appel camp, I should say, is angry with the Pirates. I think they realize the Pirates did as much as they could under the system without you know, compromising future drafts. You know, I don't think it was anybody trying to make a statement, oh, we're going to show this draft is unfair and Mark's not going to sign. I just think they felt like he was worth a lot more than $3.8 million, and they're going to go into next year's draft and get more, and we'll see. I, I, I don't think it was anything personal. I don't think anybody was trying to make a point or has a trick up their sleeve. I just think one side can only go to 3.8. That was as comfortable as they were going. They weren't going to give up a pick, and 3.8 wasn't enough for the appels to take at the end of the day.
1: doesn't mean that there might not still be something to come, but if there is, I can't see it and you can't see it.
2: If it is, it's going to be a surprise. I don't have an inkling what it can be, what it will be.
1: And then Joe asked, with well, the dust settled, sort of, who had the best draft, Jim? Uh, it's a little early, but so I, I, I will say that on draft day – I thought Toronto looked good. I don't know if it's the best draft, but I thought, and the and the Blue Jays went over budget. They're going to pay some tax. So between the high upside high school guys they got with DJ Davis, Matt Smoral, uh Gonzalez, Mitch Nay, Chase DeJong, of course, Anthony Alford, and then Marcus Stroman, you can make a case for that, those first three rounds, those picks that the Blue Jays had. I'd make a case for the Blue Jays' as best draft.
2: Well, I would make the same case, too, John. I mean, round 4 through 10, they went super cheap to afford the guys they got. But you know, taking these guys off real quick, you have two first-round picks. You get D.J. Davis, who's one of the best athletes in the draft. You get Marcus Stroman, who anybody who watched the draft show heard me rant that he shouldn't have been on the board where he was. That guy should have been a top-ten pick. I love his arm. Sandwich round, they get Matt Smorl, who would have been a mid-first-round pick if he hadn't broken his foot. They get Mitch Nay, high school hitter who really came on. They get Tyler Gonzalez, who his arm is very similar to Marcus Stroman's. Yep. It's just nasty, nasty stuff. You get a really good high school pitcher in the second round and Chase DeJong. In the third round they got a guy that I didn't think was gonna s I mean, I'm I I am amazed that the Blue Jays gave Anthony Alford seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a summer job. Yep. They're letting him continue to play football. It wasn't that they signed him away from football. They gave him seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. With no guarantees that I mean, he could after this year, so yeah. I mean I'm sure the deal spread a little bit, you know, give him some insurance. But there there's no commitment that he's playing baseball long term. That is an unbelievable amount of talent. You know, and they got some interesting guys, you know, the Ryan, they they got the guy I, I mentioned earlier, John Ryan Barucki. So to what we know so far, they gave more money to a guy outside the tenth round than any team. They gave Barucki four hundred and twenty six thousand dollars. Barucki's a guy who could have been like a third to fifth round pick if he hadn't injured his elbow in the spring. And, you know, if they nurse him back to health, he might be a steal. So I I think that's my pick for best draft. I mean, the Astros are another team that jumps from mind because I don't think yep. they sacrificed any quality with Carlos Correa at number one. But they got such a good deal because of the way the draft was going to fold. They were able to leverage him into $4.8 million, And they go get Lance McCullers, the guy who should have been in the top 10 or 15 picks. They get him in the sandwich round. They got Brett Phillips in the sixth round. Uh, I'm not sure. I would have paid Rio Ruiz, John, $1.85 million in the fourth right. round. But he is a talented hitter, and they had the money to spend. I really like the draft. I mean, the Astros did not draft well for a number of years. We banged on their farm system as not having been very good. They were aggressive. They, you know, you got to, I, to me. I give the Astros a lot of credit. They had a huge bonus pool. They spent a ton of money. They spent. You know, we don't have all the final returns on all their late round guys, but they went over 11 million. Um, they went. Oh, I forgot Nolan Fontana and Brady Rogers. I liked in the second and third round. I mean, good, they just got top of talent
1: players for an organization. And they're going to get. That doesn't have great role players. They got good role players there,
2: and they got some talented high school guys too. And, and, and in case anybody's wondering, I, I've said this a couple times today, not on the podcast. Preston Tucker, their seventh rounder, is a college senior from Florida. So I think that's about where Preston should have gone. That's where we have him rated. I, I like him as a seventh rounder. The the deadline does not apply to college seniors who have no eligibility remaining. Not Richard Jr., but a straight college senior like Preston Tucker has no college eligibility. So the Astros theoretically could sign him up until a week before next year's draft. So there wasn't that, that you know, we've got to get him done today. I think he'll get done probably in the next week or so. Um, but if Astros fans are wondering about him, I think you'll still see him sign. I think it'll be fairly quickly. They just were trying to see if they could get some other things done money-wise with some other guys. Didn't happen. They'll all come back and get Preston Tucker done fairly soon.
1: One other organization I'll throw out there, just because of the high upside possibilities there, the Rangers, Brinson, Gallo, Colin Wilde, Jamie Jarmon, Nick Williams. I know he's not one of your personal faves. Uh, they got. They I like went to high the up. second
2: round though, John. I mean, he he's got. I mean, the report on Nick Williams. I didn't mean to interrupt you, although I guess I do that a lot. But uh, <laughs> Nick Williams had first round tools. Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll interject here. My my ten year old daughter. When I – long story, I was explaining to her the concept of pardon the interruption, and she said, you and John Manuel should do that. Your voice <laughs> sounds different, and you guys are funny talking to each other when we're on speakerphone. Anyway, I had to interrupt so you on because microphone.
1: she hears me when she's on – you have me on speaker in the car, and you don't tell me that there are kids in the car. And that would be the uh, R-rated version of PPI. Exactly. It would be,
2: uh, But as I was to say, with Nick Williams, I, I mean, Nick Williams was an enigma. I love him where they got him in the second round and for signing him for $500,000. Nick Williams, his ceiling is one of the highest ceilings in this year's draft. No doubt. He just did not have a good spring. But, like, I can get him with my, you know, the Rangers had a bunch of extra picks. I can get him with my fifth pick in the second, you know, fifth overall pick in the second round for $500,000. I'll, I'll take that all day, please.
1: Yeah, no, I, I thought they had a great draft. I, to me, those are the three drafts that jump out to me: are Toronto, Houston, and Texas. Uh, Texas is the most up, most high-risk, high-reward out of those those three. Um, but I, I thought those clubs went well. So as usual, we thank uh, Joe and Japers for their questions. Uh, but Jim, it, it's a it's a different draft era, and uh, no matter what they do with the rules, no matter what the, the strength of the draft class uh you have institutional knowledge of covering the draft for more than 20 years now and uh you're the leader in the field and uh we appreciate the work that you do for us and it's a pleasure working with you and just uh very fun talking about it in the podcast whether it's uh the uh pg-13 rated version uh we're not working blue here at, uh, on the baseball america podcast but it's very fun to do and uh we're staying late on a friday to do it because it's fun so hope we get this edited and posted up tonight uh, as soon as we can and uh uh, I always enjoy going over this kind of stuff with you.
2: Yeah, well, I, John, I enjoy it too, and I appreciate all the kind words. And we have a great team at Baseball America that works on this stuff, and I still enjoy it as much as ever. And it, it seems very odd. We were finishing this podcast at 6:50 at Central Time, and I feel like I should be waiting by my phone for another four hours trying to track <laughs> uh, draft signings. It's just, it's that. That was a. We didn't even address it. That's a great change this year.
1: Absolutely. No need to
2: have a midnight deadline Eastern. 5 p.m. makes more sense, but it just feels very odd that I can actually go out and have a nice meal instead of sitting here like in a daze at 1:30 trying to figure out like, okay, what exactly just happened? Uh, it's very, very uh, nice. It, it, it's very nice, but it's 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 always fun. I, I, it, the draft is whipped by. It seems like yesterday I was working on my state list and. I guess I've got Cape League reports coming up, but it's like uh, I'm a little sad. I I almost could use another four hours, John, because it's (laughs) – or in another month. You know, the draft deadline would be in mid-August. It just seems very odd that now it's really – you know, we'll kind of jump into the early draft preview in January. It's like, you know, it's four and a half months where I'm not going to be focusing on the draft very much. It it just seems very odd to me.
1: Well, it doesn't mean we don't have stuff to do. We'll have trade deadline, obviously, in the coming weeks. Go out the next couple weeks, so plenty, plenty of action at Trade Central. Uh, like you said, you're doing the CAPE. I'm helping with our summer college leagues as well. I'm going to the cape, uh, Coastal Plain League All Star Game next Monday. Um J- uh Aaron Fitt and I will podcast next week on the college impact of the draft. That'll be fun. Uh something to look forward to. And then uh Jim and I will be in Wrigley Field in August eighteenth for the uh Under Armour All Star Game. So that'll be fun. We'll podcast next to the L like we did uh four years ago with Matt Blood. That was uh that was fun. Uh always enjoy the outdoor podcast. So plenty of plenty of that kind of stuff to come. We don't stop covering the draft, but it's definitely going to be a little bit of a lull as we all just really look ahead to 2013. Your phone's blowing up, so is mine. Time to sign off the podcast. For Jim Callis, I'm John Manuel. We'll see you next time on the Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody.
0: If you're a woman over forty dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at MIDI Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause.